Once I was young Yesterday perhaps Danced with Jim and Paul And kissed some other chaps Once I was young But never was naive I thought I had a trick or two Of my imaginary sleep And now I know context that song has kind of a double meaning uh, one in the sense that yes when we're young we don't really expect to get old at least we don't think much about it and then sometimes we get so old we literally don't know what time it is and that's been coming up more and more i think as we behold the leaders of our government uh, some of them are genuinely superannuated diane feinstein is 90 so is chuck grassley uh, Nancy Pelosi's 83, Mitch McConnell's 81, Biden's 80, Trump is 77. You know these numbers. And they're just numbers. Age is just a number, right? It sort of depends on how you're aging, how you're experiencing your age. Diane Feinstein is on a different journey uh, than probably Nancy Pelosi will be. Uh, and obviously Trump and Biden age in very, very different ways. Uh Biden is getting kind of defined as old, although he exhibits a lot more vigor than Trump does, and so on. Uh, but it, it's turned into an issue, a big enough issue that at least some candidates are are making it an issue within the context of, of a primary. Uh, here's Nikki Haley recently. This is A1 Cat. In the America I see, the permanent politician will finally retire. <laughs> We'll have term limits for Congress. And mandatory mental competency tests for politicians over 75 years old. And that was one of the nice ones. Uh, on another occasion, she referred to the Senate as the most privileged nursing home in the country. And she was specifically uh, referring to the, the leader of her own party in the Senate, Mitch McConnell, who, as everybody knows, has had these freeze-ups uh, following a fall where he had a concussion, just doesn't really seem to be himself anymore. So to talk about all this, we're going to talk about it all in lots of different ways. Um, we're going to talk about the specifics of it right now, the way it's perceived. We'll talk in the middle segment about just the dominance of baby boomers, how my generation never really seems to go away. And then at the end, we'll talk about whether non-human animals have the same biases. Uh, or whether they prefer a slightly older hyena, a hyena who's been around the jungle a few times, if that's where, if that's where hyenas go. Not 100 percent sure. Um, anyway, right now joining us is Eugene Scott, a senior politics reporter for Axios, and Lucy Schiller, writer and professor of creative writing based in Texas. She wrote a terrific piece that I found over the weekend in the Columbia Journalism Review where she, she put together, let's say, or she didn't even have to put it together. She found a very unique focus group. But Eugene Scott, let's begin with you because you you also have been working with focus groups through uh, Axios's monthly swing voter uh, focus groups. And so what's coming up here around the questions of age? Uh, how concerned are our people about the age of some of these leaders? And obviously, it would make a, be a mistake to sort of make one size fit all of them. But what are you hearing? 
Well, there is concern uh, that uh, the current leading candidates for each party might be uh, too old to take the country uh, in the best direction over the next four years. And uh, we asked voters, would they be interested in uh, amending the Constitution to impose a maximum age limit for elected officials? And many of these individuals, it was a group of uh, swing voters uh, from the state of Pennsylvania supported doing so. And it does seem as though, and maybe we talk a little bit more about this, but it seems as though almost any time you look at a national political poll now, you see voters saying up around the 70 to 75% area that they think Biden's too old or that they're concerned about age or they think that there should be some kind of, of age limits. In, in the focus group context, you get a little bit more coloration typically. Are they saying specific things that strike you, saying things that they are specifically worried about? Yeah, I mean, one one voter in particular named Frank uh, talked about losing your mental capacity and slowing down and, and said that it is inevitable. And so the point was that this isn't as personal um, as maybe some in the, you know, partisan space are making it. These are individuals who have voted for Trump and then voted for Biden. So they're swing voters and they're looking at people on both sides of the aisle and saying, I'm just not sure that these individuals are as sharp as I think leaders should be, in part because of their age. Right. And, you know, obviously what's going on in the media uh, tends to to drive this point home or maybe even inflame it a little bit. Um, I was struck by the the video of Biden speaking in Hanoi, and he does that weird lying dog face pony soldier boy or whatever it is thing that he says, and he's it's time to go to bed. But you, there you have to remember, he's on a grueling trip that has two massive time changes, an inversion of day for a night, basically, uh, which would kill me. I'm about to turn 69. Uh, and and he's being briefed on the plane every second. I mean, there just isn't a lot of slow down time. We've also seen images of Trump. I mean, recently he was giving a speech where he seemed to think that either now or at some prior point he had run in an election against Barack Obama. And he was also worried that Biden might usher in World War II. Um, and and um Eugene, I don't know if the people in the focus groups are saying anything specific about this. In a way, the gaffes can be a little bit nerve-wracking, although both of these guys have kind of been gaff-prone for most of their careers. Yes, and I think it's important to know that people are looking beyond uh, Trump and Biden. People are looking at the Senate, at Feinstein and, and McConnell. And individuals have very personal stories uh, when it comes to aging, almost uh, every focus group we've done where we've discussed age, we were talking to Michigan voters last month, there was always someone who had a personal story about a parent or someone else close to them that helped them uh, solidify their idea that being in office at this level beyond 75 might not be in the best interest of most Americans. So, Lucy, you got a lot of very personal stories. Um, you picked a group to talk to who couldn't help but have personal stories. Tell us about the, the focus group, so to speak, that you were talking to. Absolutely. So I spent um, 
quite a few sessions speaking with a particular group of older people. Um, they were all over age 70 or 72 in a personal care home um, in Pittsburgh, where I recently used to live. Um, and my presence was really, as I write in my piece, kind of more incidental than anything else. I, I was excited to speak with these residents and these people, but, um, you know, they have really busy lives there. They have um, really kind of uh, stacked social and medical and just personal calendars. And so what I did was I went um, to a place where they often kind of gather and, and talk together about politics and um, anything else that comes up. And I just asked them some questions about um, their perceptions of uh, ongoing news coverage of uh, aging and in particular of the aging politicians who um, we're talking about today. Right. And they didn't speak with one voice. It's a fascinating piece, by the way. I think it's called No New News. It's in, uh, in Columbia Journalism Review. I recommend it to people. But um, for example, if you're an older person, you experience the, the evaluation of your own aging process in a very direct way. Uh, I, as I recall, one woman kind of homed in on falls. You know, when you fall, you get asked about by your doctors, have you fallen yet? Tell us if you ever fall. So obviously when Biden falls, that may be a problem for some people. I mean, they talked about that, right? Absolutely. And I think falls um, are a really, really important piece of just how we um, those of us who are not yet older ourselves conceive and um, and consider, you know, the edges of older age. Um, so as this woman, I think it was Judy pointed out, she said, you know, the first thing the doctor asks you when you turn 65 is, have you fallen yet? Um, and they continue to ask you these questions as you progress in age. Um, and old age, you know, it's one of those things, um, in my writing anyway, that I, I started to think about the fact that we don't necessarily always have a particular cutoff um, for older age, you know, other than maybe age 65 for Social Security or Medicare. Um, rather, it's something that we kind of are looking for, we're looking for evidence of. Um, and that was kind of an idea that I was trying to get at with this particular focus group, for lack of a better term, um, was how, like, how is older age being defined by the news media is when we're watching Biden fall or stutter, or, um, you know, Diane Feinstein have a particular gaffe of one kind or another, are these really clear evidences of age? Um, and is that this kind of, um, larger category that is the same to everyone? Or is it something in which people experience um, the particular effects really differently? And um, perhaps, obviously, it's it's really more of the latter in my experience. Right. And so, you know, this goes back, Eugene, to Haley talking about maybe a competent competency test versus an age cutoff point. Um, Eugene, I'm wondering if just in the work that you've done or the observation that you've put in, you've sort of come up with any, I mean, you mentioned it in, in your first answer, but you know, this idea that maybe there should be an age beyond which you can't start a presidency or something like that. Yes. And there was discussion as well about competency tests. And there was an awareness that 75 looks different for different people. Uh, but the suggestion was that there definitely needed to be some type of measuring stick uh, that would determine if an individual was up for the job. I think there was some sensitivity to it, uh, given historically some relationship between uh, tests and voting, specifically, obviously, for non-white Americans. But this is a very different situation when we talk about leadership of a country. And there's real concern among some of these participants that 
the individuals seeking office were not addressing some of the issues that they were concerned about, in part because cognitively, perhaps they couldn't. It will, it'll be interesting if anybody ever tries that, because a cognitive uh, proficiency test is inevitably going to be weighted in certain directions. You know, <laughs> people my age can answer a lot more questions about gun smoke than <laughs> than they can about some, you know, about, about succession or something. Uh, and, I mean, and, and respectfully, I mean, <laughs> there there might be quite a few. 35 and 50 year olds who can't pass certain tests, mm-hmm. uh, you know? And so I'm sure if there's a 79 year old who does not perform as well uh, as, you know, the voters would like them to, they will draw attention to that. So um, shortly before my mother died, Lucy, I was went to her, I just drove her to her high school reunion. And I don't remember what high school reunion this was, but everybody was kind of about 80 and they were all kind of um, yelling out to each other as they greeted each other. They would yell out, glaucoma, three strokes, you know, they would just sort of greet each other by like what their most recent or or horrific medical problem was. But at one point, uh, one of the leaders of their class, this man got up and he sang a song called, it it sounded like it must be kind of a folk song or something called When the Old Folks Go Away. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's kind of there in your piece. There's a term that I hadn't really heard in this context, disengagement. Tell us a little bit about disengagement. Absolutely. Disengagement theory, um, which I bring up in my piece, is a, um, a way of understanding old age. It was a theory that was developed in, I believe, the early 60s by a pair of sociologists who um, used it as a way to explain what they argued was a natural... Um, tendency among older people to disengage from society. Um, And they really emphasized this kind of mutual disengagement, this idea that society uh, needed or just, or frankly, just did disengage with older people. And meanwhile, older people were disengaging from society. And this was a natural inherent process um, and a natural and inherent part of aging. And that it wasn't wasn't bad, but that it was a, a piece of our society. And Um, So I brought that into the piece to kind of grapple with um, the lingering effects of that theory, which has since been um, not necessarily discredited, but certainly expanded upon, pushed back against, um, given kind of uh, alternate uh, possibilities to within the field of gerontology. Yeah, you you notice this a lot, actually, during COVID, where I would see on social media, younger people say, well, this only, I don't have to worry about this, doesn't matter, because this only affects older people. (laughs) Sometimes I would answer them. Have you told your grandparents how disposable you regard them as being? Uh, I mean, it only affects old people. You can give this to your grandparents. But, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, there is that kind of sense. Well, your time has come and gone. It's somebody else's time now. And Eugene, with that in mind, there's this other question, which is where's the cohort of uh, younger politicians? Where's the bench uh, in each of these parties? What are you hearing about that? That's a real concern, and we certainly talked about that with swing voters, but before you pivot, I think it's important to note related to your previous point that individuals aren't trying to push elderly people out of the way. They just don't want them leading the country. Those are two very different things. There is a place in Washington and and civic spaces for senior advised, well-informed advisors, Uh, but perhaps in the halls of Congress might not be it. Getting to your second question, one of the things that was really interesting when talking to some of these swing voters is that they knew that they did not think that Biden or Trump were up to the job because of their age, but they couldn't really name 
people on the bench in either party that they thought could do the job. And I think we've seen this in other polls uh, among Democrats and Republicans expressing their frustration about what they consider a lack of future leaders uh, due in part to existing individuals, maybe not mentoring uh, future leaders or uh, working to develop, you know, the next generation of elected officials. Yeah, it's sort of weird, though. I mean, in the last cycle, for example, Pete Buttigieg was 38. Eric Swalwell was about 40. Tulsi Gabbard was about 39. Maybe a good thing she didn't get more traction. But uh, Andrew Yang was 45. Cory Booker, 51. Julian Castro, 46. Kamala Harris, 56. This cycle, DeSantis is 45. Haley's 51. Tim Scott's 57. It's not as if they're not there. It's that they right. don't get the same kind of traction uh, and, right. and I wonder what that's all about. Do you have a theory? I think, because this was a really fascinating period in the Pennsylvania uh, focus group moment, we put up a picture of John Fetterman and we put up a picture of Josh Shapiro. And most of the Pennsylvania voters could not identify these people. And so the reality is that, to your point, there are people waiting in the wings, whether or not people in their respective states or even more broadly know who they are, is another conversation. And I got the impression that it wasn't because they were disengaged. All of these individuals consume media, but their partners and their parents and their workers. And the reality is they cannot keep up with every Washington and aspiring Washington personality um, as you know a, a potential leader may hope uh, because they're really just trying to make it day to day. Yeah. And Lucy, I wonder what role news and journalism plays in all this. Well, I teach occasionally about this at the college level. And one point that I make to my students is like the, the top rated evening news, um, which I think is ABC right now, has about 7.5 million viewers. Whereas like, you know, primetime cable, which we think is sort of the up and coming thing, it's more like 2 million. Yeah, obviously, those 7.5 million people watching the evening news are more like the people uh, in your Pittsburgh focus group, so <laughs> to speak. I mean, that, that evening news audience is very, very old. I, I would add the, the linear audience for what I'm doing right now is also very old. Um, if, you, if you just linear, just for people not familiar, it basically means what you hear when you turn on a broadcast or what you see when you turn on a television as opposed to what you stream on demand. So our linear, linear audience, if you take people of, uh, over 65 out of it, we're barely visible in the ratings. That's who listens to public radio. And it seems to me you learn the story better on a linear basis. If you just stream what you're interested in, you're kind of you're going to sort of cycle through the same silo over and over again. I'm I'm wondering if these older people who tend to vote <laughs> also just know about certain things because of their news consumption. I think to some degree. I mean, I um, I'm 35, and I like to think that I know quite a bit about the news landscape, and I, I pay attention as much as I possibly can. That said, you know, I'm balancing. Um, as Eugene was getting at, you know, all sorts of work and other responsibilities. Um, for my piece, I spoke with two market researchers who had worked alongside um, advertisers in the kind of cable news space over the course of their careers. And they made the point, one of them I remember saying explicitly, news has always been old. Um, there is a historic pattern, at least in their understanding of older people being really reliable consumers of news and being so um, 
present and so available that advertisers in these men's recollection didn't really even necessarily have to try to reach them. What their efforts were really focused on instead was um, trying to reach younger people. But they each had kind of different explanations too, um, which got to some larger picture anyway of why older people might particularly consume the news to the degree that they do. Um, one, you know, obvious idea is that um, perhaps, you know, because they're often retired, they or maybe more sedentary, they may just be more available to be watching television or listening into a news broadcast. Um, another uh, market researcher said basically that, you know, in his estimation, they were intrinsically kind of more um, involved and interested in public affairs, which I'm not certain is totally fair, to be totally honest. But um, there's a lot of different explanations, I think, absolutely, for why older people uh, who do tend to vote at such kind of uh, record high numbers um, are so involved in the news and so available to listen to it. There's definitely something going on there. We're going to have to take a break here. Eugene Scott, senior politics reporter reporter for Axios, Lucy Schiller, writer and professor of creative, creative writing based in Texas, uh, and check out her terrific piece in Columbia Journalism Review. We're going to take a quick break, and we will come back after this. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. A lot of people struggle with sleep apnea and with CPAP machines. Dr. Carl Muller, a head and neck surgeon with Hartford Hospital, describes Inspire, a surgical alternative to the CPAP approach. Only about 60% of patients can tolerate CPAP real well. Inspire is a surgical alternative to CPAP. It's an outpatient surgery. It takes about two hours. And essentially what it does is it picks up when you're taking a breath and sends a two-second electrical pulse to the tongue, which causes the tongue to stick out a little bit and stiffen and prevent the airway from collapsing. Hartford Hospital has performed more than 200 Inspire therapy surgeries. If you've tried and failed with CPAP, you could be a candidate for this minimally invasive procedure. Patients with moderate to severe sleep apnea are candidates. There is a weight criteria, so you have to have a body mass index below 35, and you have to have to have tried and failed CPAP. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. I found this game home after World War II. Very soon after there was something new, yeah, one was made. Was 20 million more. Life was so very easy then. Our parents catered to our every whim, and we were just so very hard to ignore. Cause we were spoiled little brats learning the baby boomer blues. <laughs> I am one of those spoiled little brats. 
Uh, and we're going to talk about baby boomers, boomers very specifically in this context now with Kevin Munger, an assistant professor of political science and social data analytics at Penn State University and author of Generation Gap, Why the Baby Boomers Still Dominate American Politics and Culture. Kevin, welcome to our conversation. Happy to be here. So we, you can just run some numbers by us. I mean, we, we kind of know and we kind of don't. But, you know, it's not just Mitch McConnell or Charles Grassley or Dianne Feinstein. The Senate is kind of an old place. Absolutely. Yeah. So we really have the oldest uh, Senate, the oldest House in the history of the U.S. Actually got slightly younger this past election, but it's going to continue to plateau for a long time unless something dramatic changes. We have the oldest president. And if Donald Trump were to somehow or other win the 2024 election, he'd be the second oldest president. Um, I mean, it, it there really is this tilt. And, and I don't know how much of it can be explained by baby boomers. Biden technically is not a baby boomer. Trump just barely is. But say something anyway about the role this generation is playing in causing kind of a demographic demographic plateau at the top of politics. Yeah, absolutely. So I think sometimes discussions about generation are frivolous. It's just, okay, boomer or millennials killed XYZ thing. And so we don't take it seriously enough. And part of the reason is that, as you say, these labels are arbitrary. But if you look at the proportion of years served in Congress, people born between 1940 and 1955 really have dramatically uh, been overrepresented in how much power they have had in the history of this country compared to any generation before or after. And and is some of that is just the pig in the python, right? I mean, it's just a big number passing through the timeline of history. Is it more than that? Is there some less obvious or easy to describe way in which they've begun to kind of define the terms of politics? Right. So I think the pig and the python thing is somewhat underappreciated simply because it's not a news story every year. It's just been a very long-term uh, effect, a, a wave cresting throughout American politics and the rest of our institutions. I do think that there have been other advantages the baby boomers had access to, specifically the extremely good and broad-based economic growth and the growth of a lot of the major uh, institutions that govern our society, from professors to lawyers to doctors to uh, the leadership of the two parties in this country. The boomers got in early and have been sticking around for a long time. So I, a couple of years ago, a few years ago, um, I was in Barney Greengrass, the famous uh, deli in New York, and mm -hmm. I was by myself, so I was spying on other people. Uh, and there was a group of three at one table, and it was clearly a grandfather and his two adult grandchildren. And they were trying to show him, I think, how to swipe right on his phone, and he just couldn't quite do it. And it, after a while, the young man uh, said in, in comic exasperation, wait a minute, you want to go into space, but you can't do this? And, and there's a way in which technology is a little bit of a breaking point or, or a testing point. The thing that any deficit that an older person has may show up pretty quickly in their ability to master new digital technologies. Absolutely. So I think that this tension between there are two basically distinct forces, right? There's the baby boomer generation, which is at the top end of the life cycle. And we have this radical shift in communication technology happening at the same time. And the confluence of these two things, I think, is why everything seems so weird right now. In some ways, 
we're stuck in the past. This, the baby boomers are still primarily using the linear media that you were describing. And yet so much of the world has moved online in a world, a space that they don't have good intuitions about how to use it or what it means. Yeah, I mean, I think this is ha this has profound um, implications and shows up in real world capacities. I'll give you one example. I spent quite a lot of time trying to understand the whole Hillary Clinton email thing. A lot of it devolves into the fact that she had gotten comfortable using a BlackBerry. Uh, and she wasn't, she's not a computer person, doesn't use a laptop, uh, or at least didn't at that time. Uh, but she could use a BlackBerry, and there's only one BlackBerry that has the, the right level of security equipment on it, and that's the president's BlackBerry. Obama had one. She didn't. And, and that kind of set off a cascade of really bad decisions about what to do about our emails that, that led to all, all kinds of tragic consequences. But it is that fact, right, that, that and it also means that politicians have always been dependent on their staffs for stuff. Mm -hmm. But I think they must be really dependent on their staffs if they don't know the tech. Yeah, that's right. So sometimes they make this point that perhaps our tech policy would be more dynamic or, or more up to date if we had younger politicians. And people always say, well, the politicians don't really do anything anyway. Their staff is, is running the show. And first of all, I think that's really quite cynical to say that we have no electoral control over what's happening in, in Congress. I certainly hope that's not entirely true. But also there are, as you say, these like lived experience, day-to-day -day things which actually have a big impact and can't be taken over by the staff when it comes to compared to farm policy or nuclear policy. The not knowing about farm policy doesn't mean that you're actually going to mess up a farm with your hands, but tech, you can't. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, I think in the case of Diane Feinstein, we, we know that her staff is essentially doing everything at this point, but that isn't necessarily true for, for other politicians. Um, so the other question here is, I mean, <laughs> kind of famously, Gen X just disappears from every single conversation. <laughs> that was their identity going in, and it's still their identity. And, and we can talk about Gen Y. But really, the millennial generation is the next one that seems to excite with, through its identity, through just conversations, through its assertion of some of its own needs and values, a similar level of high identification to the baby boomers. Say a little bit about what you see in terms of millennial presence or missingness, as the phrase is, in politics these days. Right. So first of all, this is demography. So there's just a lot of millennials. They were originally called the echo boomers. So um, there are a lot of us, and that's part of why we're starting to assert ourselves so much. I think also that the inability to work our way up to big political parties is what, what's causing this frustration about a lack of a pipeline. So you know, perhaps the most powerful uh, millennial politician, Pete Buttigieg, um, and yet he famously was not very popular among millennials. And I think this is because millennials did not really see him as one of our own. In fact, in order to achieve the power that he has, he has had to appease the boomers who still run these institutions. And I, I think it's helpful to contrast this with a lot of European countries where they have third parties, green parties that have a lot of youth energy, which develops a pipeline of talent and then gets more young people involved in politics and produces a positive feedback loop that is lacking in American politics. Yeah, I think you can see it uh, that the, the way these older boomer or even pre-boomer politicians have a kind of field of gravitation uh, that pulls other stuff towards them. I mean, you think about millennial politicians on the Republican side, like Elise Stefanik and J.D. Vance. Each of them, I think, has tracked from his or her original 
point in the solar system towards Trump. They both become, I mean, Stefanik in particular has become way more Trumpy uh, than she was at the outset. It's in order to function in this world, you got to get Trumpy. And and now uh, Vivek uh, Ramaswamy is 38 years old, the same age as Buttigieg in the last cycle. And he's sort of trying to out-Trump Trump, if anything, trying to take even more ferociously kind of MAGA-style positions. But this seems to be kind of in of originality. It just seems like it's an echo of the older person. Well, I think that the way that we select candidates is extremely biased towards older people at present, so that younger people are much less likely to turn out for primary elections, even more than they are in general elections. But beyond that, the campaign finance is extremely skewed towards older people. So the percentage of the top 100 donors that are over 80 years old is higher than the percentage of them that are under 45. So that is really out of whack with the population at large, but given the importance of fundraising in the early stages of the presidential primaries, you simply have to go where the money is. The the concern among younger voters has to be that these people don't have the same concerns, I, I think, well, among potential Democratic voters in particular or unaffiliated voters. I mean, a lot of these young people are very legitimately, understandably, really worried about climate change. There's a sense that an 81-year-old senator just isn't worried in the same way. There's a way in which mothers and fathers of school-age kids are worried about school shootings. You don't have to be indifferent about it when you're 75 or 80, but it's not the same kind of urgency. Talk about how that turns up. And, and it, I'll just sort of add to it. It always strikes me that from the Democrats' point of view, it's a very exploitable rift. There's just a And you could add reproductive stuff because, you know, obviously people, younger people have more issues about reproductive law. But the climate change thing in particular, I mean, the Republican Party seems very inimical to putting any controls or breaks on climate change. You would think that would just cause a stampede to Democratic candidates. Yes. Um, I think this speaks to the fact that the Democratic uh, Party establishment is still controlled by boomers who uh, care more about continuing to hold power than about winning in the future. Um, And that's the the nature of our institutional setup. That's what creates these incentives. But I think you're right that it seems like the Democrats should have a bigger advantage among younger people than they do. But I think the bigger trend is simply most younger people are more likely to be unaffiliated with either party and not really voting. They're just alienated from electoral politics in general. And I think it's an open question. It's still possible that a political entrepreneur on the Republican side could come along and offer a different package, which would be more appealing to young voters. And I think that essentially, which of the parties switches to young voters issues first will play a big role in the way that issues and different groups are divided up in the next decades. Yeah, there's this weird kind of game theory that's happening right now. You could argue that the party that can get rid of its front runner in the 24 election would command a tremendous advantage. If you could somehow or other get Biden out of the picture and a younger candidate in there, if you could somehow or other get Trump out of the picture and a younger, less weird candidate in there, you know, either one of those things would create a huge advantage. Neither party seems able to do it because of the kind of predominance that, that you've been talking about. In In another country, this would simply turn into third, fourth, and fifth parties. Much harder to do in this country, right? Yeah, absolutely right. I've been um, so ever since I wrote this book, and then the big uh, 
news items of McConnell and Feinstein in the past month, I'm getting a lot of interest from European journalists who are mostly just astonished. The, the, the system over there is so different. And I think that's a good point to drive home to a lot of the American consumers who become used to this setup. Um, it's not this way in other countries. They have dramatically younger politicians because they have different electoral institutions. And so I think thinking about changing our institutions from the ground up rather than having a post hoc fix of uh, an age limit or some kind of, of test would be a, a better uh, solution, which would allow for more of our population to be represented by the politicians. Yeah, I think part of the problem also in our system, our, there's two, there's kind of yoked together problems. One of them is that the president of the country or the most recent president of the country tends to have a tremendous amount of power. Uh, over the party. I mean, Biden is the most powerful person in the Democratic Party. It's not any member or coalition within the DNC. Trump has the same kind of just overwhelming hegemony uh, in the Republican Party. And, and, And so things, once again, tend to follow like tales of comets. But and, and part of the reason, the structural reason that makes this a problem is our system, unlike a lot of European systems, has a thing where if you don't get the requisite number of electoral college votes, a presidential election can get thrown into the House. And there's a lot of people who, for a lot of reasons, don't want the House of Representatives deciding a presidential election. And the structure of it's even weirder than that. And and I just think, you know, European countries don't labor with this particular kind of problem. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's something, I mean, our constitution is the oldest in the world, and to some extent, it's suffering from success, right? So the, the fact that it's the oldest in the world is a testament to the stability of the system it created, but it also means it's the oldest in the world. It's the least up-to-date. And so as things like the longevity of the average person has gone up over the past 250 years, uh, we haven't actually had any major uh, reforms to how we uh, run things. And that just means that we have these paradoxes where if we were to design it fresh, we would not design it the way it is now. No. I mean, look, the Constitution is like Hal in 2001. It doesn't want to be changed, and it's managed yeah. to lock out the astronauts who might be trying to change it. It's made itself almost impossible to amend. Uh, and so I don't think it's a good thing. I think it's, as you're suggesting, very similar to the, the, the principal problem we've been talking about here. The Constitution's too damn old. Most countries have changed over their governing or foundational documents uh, in, in that same amount of time, as you're pointing out. Anyway, I'm being told that our, our segment here is over, Kevin, but this has been really, really fascinating. Kevin Munger, assistant professor of political science and social data analytics at Penn State University, author of Generation Gap, Why Baby Boomers Still Dominate American Politics and Culture. Well, it turns out they don't dominate non-human animals. They don't even have baby boomers. We'll talk about that after this. The days are short. I'm in the autumn of the year. And now I think of my life as vintage wine from fine old kegs from the brim. When we think of slavery in the U.S., we don't usually think of Connecticut, but slavery happened here. The probate inventory mentions three cows, two barns, one enslaved Negro woman, and one Indian boy. Coming March 18th, a special series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org unforgotten. 
Funding provided by the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture. Connecticut's own Jacques Pepin is a culinary icon. When you make a contribution to Connecticut Public today, you can experience a once-in-a-lifetime dinner with the acclaimed PBS chef and author on Monday, May 6th at the gorgeous Oceanfront Madison Beach Hotel in Madison, Connecticut. Sponsored by Isana Plastic Surgery Center and Med Spa and Fuchs Financial. For tickets, visit ctpublic.org slash pepin. All episodes of The Colin McEnroe Show are available 24-7 at ctpublic.org slash Colin, which is also where you can sign up for our delightful free fortnightly newsletter, The Newsletter. You can listen to any episode on any podcast app. Have a question or comment? Email us at colinshow at ctpublic.org. Now, back to the show. And our technical producer today is Cat Pastor, which is good. We always like it if it's Cat Pastor. Uh, and Lily Tyson, the senior producer of the Colin McEnroe Show, is the producer of this particular episode. So, yes, as we were thinking about all this, we thought, well, animals have leaders. I mean, not always, but groups of animals typically do have leaders. And probably a good idea to have a good leader. So, so how does age and experience enter into that? Jennifer Smith is the expert. She studies the evolutionary ecology of social mammals at the University of Wisconsin at Eau Claire. Uh, and I said animals. I mean non-human animals. Obviously, we're animals, too. So, um, yeah, there's a lot to say about this. Jennifer Smith, first of all, welcome to our conversation. Thank you. So happy to be here. So animals don't have elections. They don't cast ballots. How do they choose leaders? They choose leaders through a variety of different mechanisms. And animals tend to, well, social ones, leadership is really, really important. And the ways that they choose leaders tends to be either based on prestige, how much they like the leaders, or potentially how dominant and how forceful the leaders are. And I mean, leaders probably do different things in in the cases of different species, but a lot of it's like, I assume things like, let's go over there. Let's not be here. Let's go over there. Um, is, Is it more than that? Well, we say, oh gosh, they're just moving from one area to another, but For non-human animals, staying alive is incredibly important. So survival, reproduction, those are the main quantities that evolutionary biologists track for non-human leaders. And so we do see a lot of leadership happening where members of a social group will go from one area that is maybe less safe and a leader will move them to an area that's more safe. So say fewer lions (laughs) um, would be around or potentially to where food is. If I'm elected, fewer lions. Uh, it seems like a good platform. Um, so <laughs> uh, so we should talk a little bit about what we've been talking about in the show today, whether Asian experience is actually regarded by animals as a helpful indicator of leadership potential. And obviously, this is all over the map. I mean, bees and pigeons, and they have leaders. Uh, but as we're talking about mammals in particular, do they, in fact, think older and wiser? Or they may not think that. Do they act as though older and wiser uh, were good attributes? Well, the answer is it depends. So <laughs> biodiversity brings rise to a variety of different solutions. But on average, individuals do choose leaders that tend to be older. And what I mean by that, these tend to be older females that have lived in a group for a very long time 
and have accumulated knowledge about the area. It might be where to avoid those lions or it might actually be for killer whales and orcas. Um, same thing, they will locate and have precise knowledge about where salmon fisheries are. And so these orcas actually outlive um, many other species. They're very long lived in the same way that humans are. And they experience menopause in the same way that humans do. Yet they're very, very important for members of their groups and particular males in locating food when salmon are very scarce. Right. You know who tells the orcas where the salmon fisheries are? Penguins. Penguins say, <laughs> salmon over there. That's what you want. You don't even feel like having penguin today. Here's where the salmon are, let me tell you. But then, what you just said is really interesting. Obviously, the United States of America has not had a female president yet. Um, this apparently is not the way it works in nature. And do we know, for example, why orcas and elephants might skew in that direction? We know that in these long-lived animals that they, both of those species tend to have large brains and sort of the same way humans do. In these species, they have an amazing memory. And so they can accumulate this social knowledge and this ecological knowledge across their lifetime. And it's incredibly important in keeping members of the group alive. So it seems like there's some selection on having a good memory. And those that have this long um trajectory of understanding what works and what does not work tends to be favored in these more democratic societies. Now, not all of them are democratic, so there's a lot of variety here. Yeah, and, and so uh, if in fact, and when we say democratic in a non-human animal context, I think what we're really saying is cooperative um, as opposed to strictly hierarchical. That's right. So some societies, they tend to share resources, individuals vote with their feet. And in these movement or feeding contexts, they'll move from one area to go to another place. In other societies that are more dominance-based or hierarchical, so they have a dominance hierarchy or pecking order like chickens might, we actually see a pretty different strategy within the realm of leadership. In fact, we see this dominance related style of leaders where leaders are forcing individuals in the group to behave a particular way. And they're doing it through fear. They're doing it through some of these other types of tactics that you were talking about with our previous guest, Kevin, uh, more, most recently. Right. So orcas might say, a rising tide lifts all orcas. Um, where, if, assuming that's what orcas want to do, they probably don't want to be lifted, actually. But, um, but yeah, the, you know, we're more familiar, I think, from nature documentaries and stuff like that about bull mooses locking horns to see, you know, who's the boss, or maybe lions as well. Um, although we did a whole segment recently about the fact that alpha wolves aren't really—that's not a real thing. Like the guy who invented that term spent the rest of his life trying to persuade people not to use it. So when we talk about dominance. You know, and I think people's minds go st straight towards fighting a test of strength to see who the leader is going to be. How real a thing is that in a dominance oriented uh, species? That's a great question. So the concept of dominance is very much like you said, it's very glorified in the popular literature. But in fact, in animal societies, when individuals have a ranking pecking order, a lot of it is ritualized. So it's walking up, putting ears back, 
tail between the legs and just saying, okay, I understand that you are in charge, you're calling the shots here. But in a lot of animal societies that have these hierarchies, so baboons, spotted hyenas that I worked on for my PhD work, they're pretty strict hierarchies and they're incredibly stable over time. So what happens is in these societies of baboons, vervet monkeys, and spotted hyenas, a carnivore, they inherit their social rank from their mother and that rank is important in influencing a wide suite of leadership qualities. And what's really interesting is they inherit it when they're born. So young individuals become dominant individuals like the second they're born. So minutes of fighting, they used to think spotted hyenas would have an all out battle and um, to the death, but they're actually just in a couple of minutes establishing their dominance hierarchy. And that is incredibly stable until adulthood. However, sometimes one of the alpha within the group will die. <laughs> and if that older, often older individual that's alpha passes away, then actually they have a youngest ascendancy process, which means that the youngest individual that is slotted directly below her mother is the one that becomes the dominant individual and by extension, the leader in those societies. Wow, that that's amazingly complicated. It's like the Windsors, except probably a better system. Um, the um, <laughs> now, obviously, if you're a baboon, and you're getting older, and you've lost a step. I mean, you're going to find out about it right away. You're going to you're going to lose a fight, or it's going to show up. You can't really be the leader anymore. But just back to the more cooperative democratic groups, and we're running out of time here. But is there a point where the the elephant herd goes, wow? You know, Babar over there has kind of lost a step. She just doesn't really have it anymore. We, maybe, we, maybe we need to bring somebody else in. You know, we really don't see evidence of that. So most of these overthrows, and they actually require some kind of a dominant structure to, to have an overthrow, happen in these rigid societies. And the more cooperative ones where there's more um, voices that are heard, more flexible leadership roles. We do see who's the leader can vary from time to time and even from context to context. But on average, these older, often adult females referred to as matriarchs are not questioned. In fact, if they are questioned, they can reinforce their um, leadership status through a variety of mechanisms. All right. We have to stop there. This is so interesting, though. And I thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. Jennifer Smith studies the evolutionary ecology of social mammals at the University of Wisconsin at Eau Claire. I don't think it includes the Packers, uh, but uh, thanks so much for talking to us today. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be here. I'm a Packers fan. That's the only reason I said that. And they lost yesterday. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Empathy. It's important at all aspects. That's right. You'd make, a, you'd make a great lead elephant. I can just tell. Uh, all right. We're, <laughs> we're going to have to stop, but thanks for listening today, and thanks to everyone who helped. It has been easier to medicate, but I know that you won't go away. Couple years since you learned how fly elephant hit the tears as I numbed out the time elephant couple moved to the coast and to the town and back again couple worlds that I was in